Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. First of all, a quick happy holidays to everyone. I hope everyone is having a relaxing time with their loved ones. Sorry this episode is a little late, but, you know, I was also having a relaxing time with my loved ones. Plus, I think if I'd pulled out my laptop and a copy of Gregory's Histories at Christmas, my mother might have taken drastic action. Anyway, in that holiday spirit, what's more relaxing than discussing a man slowly realising that his lifelong dream is a bit more than he had bargained for? Following on from our discussion of the aftermath of Chilperic's assassination last week, this week we'll be discussing the new senior king of the Frankish realms, Guntram, in episode 43, With Great Power Comes Great Problems. When we left off last week, Guntram was in a seemingly enviable position. He had seized control of Chilperic's Neustrian kingdom, forced his nephew Childebert II to back off, and, with Fredegund's help, extracted oaths of loyalty from the Neustrian elite. But, as we'll see throughout this episode, paramount power comes with its own issues. The most obvious of those is the fact that now that you're on top, everyone wants to knock you off of your perch. All of the problems are now yours to solve. The shift in Guntram's attitude reflects his growing awareness of the precarity of his new position. The kingdoms were large and hard to govern. Maintaining his position would be difficult. His rule in Paris apparently began well. In particular, he restored a lot of wills that Chilperic had thrown out. These were many of the same wills that Chilperic had complained had left too much to the church. So Guntram's actions can be seen as an important kickback to his base of support amongst the clergy. Gregory notes that, quote, He behaved with great kindness to his many subjects and made considerable grants to the poor, end quote. Now this is entirely possible, but it is also an obvious attempt to contrast Guntram with the wicked Chilperic, who apparently hated the poor, so a large pinch of salt with these moralizing sections is needed. But still, things for Guntram were going well. The notables of the realm, including Fredegund, had sworn to him. He'd gotten rid of a hostile army without a drop of blood being spilled. He should have been the most popular man in the city. But he doesn't seem to have felt the adoration of the people of Paris. In fact, Gregory records that Guntram quickly became very paranoid. This is perhaps unsurprising. Two of his brothers had been murdered near Paris, close to the height of their power, and had been taken completely by surprise. The Neustrian elite might have sworn oaths to him, but, as we covered last week, these oaths were probably overshadowed by their years of experience following Fredegund. It is highly likely that Guntram understood, as soon as he left, these men would try to act more independently or fall in line behind the regent queen. Now that Guntram had removed Childebert II and stabilised the kingdom, would Fredegund come for him next? 
Would she have him killed as she'd had one, perhaps both of his brothers killed? Or if Childebert and Brunhild were responsible, would they try to remove Guntram another way, now that military force and diplomacy had both failed? These insidious fears swirled in Guntram's mind. He began taking large armed escorts everywhere he went in the city, even to church. Imagine sitting in church in Paris, and the king is sitting across from you, but he is surrounded by several heavily armed guards. Not very Christian, nor is it a great sign of how safe he feels in your city. Gregory even records one extraordinary situation where the deacon was trying to quiet the congregation for mass when Guntram suddenly stood and began giving a speech. The blunt fear he expresses in the speech, according to Gregory, is worth repeating. Quote, Men and women, all people present, I ask you to remain loyal to me instead of assassinating me as only recently you assassinated my brothers. Give me three years at least in which to bring up these two nephews of mine, who are my adopted sons, for otherwise it might well happen, and this I beg everlasting God not to permit, that I should be killed while they were still small children, and then you too would perish, for there would be no fully grown man of my line to protect you. End quote. Now, Gregory records that the people of Paris heard this speech and prayed for Guntram's safety, apparently convinced by his words. But, of course he'd say that. In reality, this pre-mass speech reads more like a coded message to the notables of the city, many of whom were likely in attendance in the church with the king. In fact, it's basically a threat to these men and women, saying that if they kill him, there is no fully grown man to keep the Merovingian dynasty together, and chaos will reign. On top of this, it also sounds just a little like begging, and not to be fully safe, only to be safe for three years. Pretty odd choice, honestly. Why three years? In three years, Childebert would be fully grown, but Clothar would still be a young child. Perhaps this is yet another veiled threat to the anti-Childebert notables. Keep me alive, or the next man to come for you will be from the east, and he will be much less forgiving. Anyway, while Guntram was panicking about assassinations, justified or not, things were heating up to the south. Let's return to the story of Chilperic's daughter, Rigunth and her large procession south to the court of the Visigoths. Now, if you remember back, she had already been the victim of the deteriorating political situation. Some of the retainers sent by her father had robbed her just outside of Paris, fleeing to Childebert II, and many had been slowly trickling away since, helping themselves to some treasure as they went. Most of the notables who had originally set out with her returned once they reached Poitiers, and the soldiers that had continued south had been looting and pillaging the land as the procession had gone. Finally, 
her troubled party limped its way into Toulouse. Toulouse was a significant city and the former capital of the Visigoths. The courtiers that still remained insisted that they stop and rest in the city. The next step of their journey would be to move into Septimania, the nearby strip of Gothic territory in southern Gaul. Before they presented themselves to the Visigoths though, they wanted to repair the damage that the hard road had done to their party. Their shoes were torn, their clothes shabby and dusty, and the furnishings on their carriages and horses would need to be assembled. Chilperic had wanted them to present a magnificent sight to the Goths, and while they'd had some hard luck on the road, they still had more than enough to impress. So Rigunth agreed, and the procession stopped in Toulouse. This may have seemed like a prudent move at the time, but it was soon to have major consequences. While they rested and prepared in Toulouse, whispers began to spread. News didn't travel very fast these days, but it was trickling south slowly. Before it reached Rigunth and her remaining protectors, however, it reached the ears of a local noble, Desiderius. This Desiderius was one of Chilperic's men in the area. Early in his career, he had been beaten soundly by the great general Mummelus, but later he had seized and ravaged large swaths of central Gaul for Chilperic, earning himself a rather fearsome reputation. A capable warrior and a powerful southern noble, upon hearing of the death of his patron king, he jumped into action. One day, Rigunth and her party received news that Desiderius was entering Toulouse with a group of his most experienced soldiers. No one thought to try prevent him entry. After all, they served the same king. But once he was inside of the walls, Desiderius became laser-focused. He quickly found out where the party had left all of the treasure that they had remaining, which was mostly Rigon's dowry for her marriage. He then seized it for himself. Instead of leaving with the treasure, which he might not have had the manpower to actually carry, there was certainly a lot of it, he moved it to a different building and barred the doors and sealed the entrances. He then placed the building under guard by his own men. He gave the Princess Rigunth a measly allowance, barely enough for her to survive in the city until he returned. See, Desiderius was facing a crisis of his own. Despite his power base in the south, far away from Paris, Chilperic had always been powerful enough to protect him. But with Chilperic dead, who could he now turn to? He had no way of knowing if Fredegund had managed to survive. He was too far away to have up-to-date details of court politics in Paris. Plus, Fredegund would be busy dealing with internal issues and shoring up her support at court for a while, leaving those outside of court outside of her reach, and thus unprotected. Clothar II was, obviously, still a baby, and would not be able to help Desiderius and the southern nobles for many years. That left Desiderius and his friends with two options, both pretty awful. Guntram was now the paramount king in the realm, 
But Desiderius had spent years building his own wealth and power at the expense of Guntram. His attacks in Central Gaul on Chilperic's orders had all been against Guntram's lands. He was unlikely to find a warm welcome with a man that he had essentially robbed and raided so effectively in the past. His other option was Childebert II. Many of the nobles in southern and central Gaul had gotten their start with Sigebert, and thus held pro-Childebert sympathies. But, as we'll soon see, these men could not get far with such sympathies. For the time being, Guntram had effectively locked Childebert in the east. Even if he had wanted to move to protect any of these loyalists in the former lands of Chilperic, he couldn't. Doing so would risk open conflict with Guntram, a conflict he would almost certainly lose. So, no kings, no queens, no good options left for Desiderius. In this situation, he was forced to take a big risk. After locking up Rigon's treasure, he moved east to Avignon to go see his old enemy, Mamelus. If you remember back, Mamelus had fled the court of Guntram, likely due to his pro-Childbert leanings. He had fortified himself in his city of Avignon, and then completely humiliated Guntram Boso when the man had been sent by Guntram to capture him. Chilperic had died soon after, so Guntram had been forced to move north, leaving Mamelus still alive and still in open rebellion. Desiderius had apparently already made an agreement with his former rival, and that was likely because of one man, Gundervold. The pretender was back, and now that Guntram was distracted in the north, he had slipped back into Gaul and was now living with Mamelus in Avignon. Desiderius threw his lot in with Mamelus and Gundervold. With two powerful dukes now on his side, and his main opposition distracted all the way on the other side of Gaul, it was finally time to make a bold move. Desiderius, Mamelus, and Gundervold moved into the area of Limoges, to a place called brive la guillard In this town was a tomb of a Saint Martin. Not Gregory Saint Martin, but it was one of the great saint's disciples. There, at this holy place, Gundervold was raised on the shields of his men and proclaimed king. There was only one path forward now, civil war. Now, all hell is about to break loose in the realm. Guntram is going to move to consolidate his position. Childebert is going to poke around looking for weak spots. Gundervold and his rebellion is going to sow chaos and the nobles and bishops of the realm are going to struggle in the conflict to protect their own interests. It's quite a lot of stuff happening all at once, so I think it's best we leave the beginning of it to next week. Before we end though, I think the proclamation of Gundervold is a perfect opportunity to reflect on a couple things about Merovingian authority in this period. If you remember way back to the sons of Clovis, they faced one powerful rebel who tried to claim a kingship, Munderic. 
What was unique about Munderic was that he had no Merovingian blood, nor did he claim any. Back then, there were still those who lived who could remember a time when the Franks had been ruled by a myriad of kings, instead of being dominated by the family of Clovis. Munderic had been the last gasp of the independent Frankish nobility. While his rebellion failed, he had shown that Merovingian dominance over the title of king was not quite complete. Gundervold shows us the opposite. As we'll see in future episodes, Gundervold constantly talks about his Merovingian heritage, even trying to rope the elderly Radegund in to prove that he had pure Merovingian blood. In the 80-odd years between the rebellions of Munderic and Gundervold, things had completely changed. The Merovingians had established an iron grip on political legitimacy, and there was no one left in Gaul who remembered a time when they weren't ruled by a Merovingian. To be a king was to be a descendant of Clovis. To be otherwise was simply unthinkable. This is why Gundervold was so vocal about his parentage. He had to be, if he was to gain any support in the realm. This unshakable Merovingian legitimacy extends farther than one might think. Let's think about former queens like Radegund, Fredegund, and Brunhild. At this point, all of their husbands had died. It is also worth noting that Radegund and Brunhild weren't even Franks, they were foreign princesses. But despite all of this, all of the queens retained all of their titles and the respect of the court along with the accompanying political power after their husband's death. No one ever tried to question their association with the Merovingian house. Merovingian kingly legitimacy was so powerful that their wives were Merovingians for life. Radigund didn't even have any royal children, but it didn't matter. The name was enough to protect them. This kind of unshakable legitimacy is something quite rare in world history. It would take over a century of declining power before anyone would dare question the right of a Merovingian to the crown. By the end, they are basically powerless figureheads, but no one dared to dethrone them. Even at the end, it was only with the intervention of the Pope himself that allowed Pepin to dethrone the last Merovingian. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. The Merovingian family may be at risk of dying out, but their collective hold on political legitimacy was stronger than ever. In future episodes, we'll discuss the political and legal innovations that the kings of this period used to express and expand upon their legitimacy. Wild tribal leaders no more, these men weren't even relying on Roman archetypes anymore. No, they were creating something new. Something in which we can begin to see the origins of things like medieval kingship, the Holy Roman Empire, and even France itself. That's it for this week. Next week, 
we're going to dive right into the struggle and strife that is engulfing the lands of the Merovingians. I'll see you then. <laughs>